before I start my lesson, I've got a couple book recommendations. One I've recommended before, and that's Why Does God Allow Suffering? And a couple of new ones is Blindsided by Life and Daring to Hope. And those are all available at CEI Bookstore and online, I'm sure, in many other places. Uh, how many of you remember September 11th, 2001? You know, there are many here that remember that day vividly, and there are also some here who are very young or who aren't even born yet. On September 11th, 2001, our country was under attack, and 2,977 were, uh, people were killed, and another 6,000 were injured. And I will not attempt this morning to try to explain why things like that happen. Questions are asked when events like this happen. Why do tragedies like this exist? And why do people, how could people do such a thing? But listen, good rational people will never be able to explain or to understand evil, irrational behavior. So I won't try to explain that this morning because I can't explain it. But regardless of the cause of, of events like this one, one truth stands, and that's we are changed by it. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we behave. That particular instant changed the way we do things from a governmental level and, and laws were passed. It certainly changed the way we go about traveling by air. Ultimately, events like that serve as just Another example, further proof about life and a sobering reality that as long as man is given free choice and as long as one of those choices is sin, some men will choose it. And when they do, people will get hurt. That's the world we live in and that's the truth about life. So our study is going to go in a different direction. Our purpose is not to try to figure out why or how such things take place. Our purpose is to consider what. What do you and what do I need to know? What are some of the truths that you and I can take this opportunity to share with others that even when such tragedies like uh, strike us on a national level or things that, that hit close to home and in people's individual lives, what are some truths that we need to know that we, so that we can not only continue to be faithful, but that we can continue to grow in faithfulness, even in the face of tragedy? And I'll tell you again, I do not have this answer. I lack the wisdom to tell you how to grow your faith through tragedy. I don't have the experience, and I don't have the perspective. But God has spoken. God knows you and he knows me and he knows what life is like. So he knows we will face things that we are not equipped to handle on our own. And so he has delivered these great truths to help us. And I'm going to share five of them with you this morning. Some of them are a little frightening, but true nonetheless. Others are encouraging and uplifting and hopeful. But all five come together to represent a portion of the counsel of God, of the infallible God who knows you best. And so we will be discussing 
these five ideas, and here's the first, and it is the most obvious of all. It's the thought that most of us have after hearing about such a tragedy, and it's simply this. And don't we all at least know this on some level, that it's true that life is fragile for us all. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there is an appointed time for every event under heaven. There is a time to give birth, and then there is a time to die. I think the most interesting part of this passage is what Solomon does not say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He does not say when your time to die was going to take place. He does not say how it will occur, and he did not explain why these times and ways were so different across the board and so unpredictable in each and every life. On that day, 11 children died. Their ages were between 2 and 11. Others that died, their ages ranged between 17 and 85. And we focus heavily, heavily on that event and how unnecessary it was. Do you realize in this country every day, 300 people die from, because of accidents, just from accidents? People of every age and background and education, and that's not to mention what happens in hospitals and the thousands of more who, who lose their lives. Now let me tell you about those numbers. They sort of scare me. I'm not, I am frightened by the prospect that today is not a guarantee, and not the rest of this afternoon either, because life is fragile for us all. And that's where James chapter 4 I think James chapter 4 passage is so beneficial to us. I think most of, us know, most of us know this passage pretty well, especially one particular line in verse 14. And let's read verse 14 starting in the middle of the verse. It says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now let me tell you what that we do, James chapter 4, and injustice when we consider only that portion the truth that we come for a while and vanish away. We're here today and gone tomorrow. There are more things happening here that we need to understand. An application of that point that we shouldn't miss. Look back at verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year and engage in business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. He's teaching us that living with a sense of entitlement, like I have earned the right today and I deserve the rest of the week because uh, is a foolish way to live. So we ought to be careful about long-term plans in our short-term life. After verse 14, he says this in verse 15, instead of that sense of entitlement and expectation. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. You know, that's why we say that. Are you one of the people that says that almost all the time? You know, Lord willing this and Lord willing that. Do you know why we say that? Because it's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that I have absolutely no control over the number, number of breaths that I will take between now and when my time is up. 
but God does. God does have control. And so we say, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills. And then he finishes up in verses 16 and, and 17. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to no one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. We are supposed to be humbled by this truth. It's not enough just to walk around and say, life is fragile for everyone and you just never know when you're going to go and there's no promises for the future. That's not enough. I, almost, I must also have the humility to say, because of that, I will not live in arrogance and I will not live in sin one more moment. And as for this life in the flesh, the life in the flesh that you brought with you today, this body that you've been carrying around with you, that you started your journey on earth with, don't hang on too tight because there is nobody in this room with a grip strong enough on your life to even hold it in guarantee for one more minute. Don't hold on too tight to the flesh. Life is fragile for us all. Now, that first point may not bring much comfort, but it might bring you to a place where you can find comfort because the second observation we need to make is this. God comforts us in our affliction. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Open your Bibles there. I do not have the answers. There are many things about this life that I sure don't understand, and we recognize that there are no guarantees. So how can I ever find peace in a life like this? The answer will always be God. God provides comfort in the face of great afflictions. Now, this context in 2 Corinthians 1 is about Christians who are suffering greatly for their faith. They're being afflicted by others because they love Jesus. And so these points are true if you're being persecuted for your faith, but they are also true in a general application of the affliction of the flesh while you're on this earth. Let's read a little bit of verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. You know what that means? It means that if you're hurting, God is the answer. That if you don't know where to turn, God is the answer. God provides comfort for affliction. And now I think a logical question is, okay, I like the way that sounds and it makes sense to me that God is gonna help me, but how? How will God comfort me in great affliction? I'm confused and I'm hurt and I'm saddened. He gives us that answer as well. There are two things in the text. First, look, he comforts us through his son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse five. It says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also, is our comfort, uh, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and, who will, who, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. 
You know, our hope is found in the promise of Jesus. There are so, there's so much, I don't know, but there's one thing that I do know and that Jesus lived and that he died and he was raised again and he's ruling in heaven. That is our hope. You will always find comfort in the promises that come through Jesus. But that's not all. We're comforted by the promises of Jesus. We're, we're also comforted by God's people. The warm embrace of God's love, it often comes in the form of a brother or sister in Christ. And that's found here in our text as well. Look at verse 4 again. We stopped midway in that verse, so let's finish that verse. Who comforts, uh, comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says, I am comforted by the promises of Jesus so that I can become a comfort to you. And when you find peace, talking to y'all, when you find peace, would you do me a favor? I'm talking to y'all now. I'm not talking about the text for a moment. I'm talking to y'all. I hope if you find peace and comfort, would you please share it? Share that because that's God's plan for God's family to find that strength and to share it. Now, keep looking at verse 5. It says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. When we suffer, we stand through it, and it brings you comfort. And when we are comforted, you are comforted. God provides comfort in all afflictions through Jesus and, and through God's people. You know, something that really struck me when I was watching a special on the 9-11 attacks was all the mention of prayer and Jesus and church. Did you know on September 11, 2001, there was prayer in schools? Yep, and they were praying in Jesus' name. There were prayers all across, across the country where, where people were praying in Jesus' names. Politicians were even quoting Scripture. Words from Jesus. Churches were meeting, not just on Sunday and Wednesday. There were, they were meeting at all different hours to talk about the promises of Jesus now you might look and say, you know, that sort of feels like hypocrisy to me. People who push God away and then when tragedy comes, they want God in the middle of their lives. Well, maybe so. But maybe it's this, that God has built into our very nature that no matter who you are or what background your background is or what you're going through, when we're hurting, we search for God because God comforts us in our afflictions. And that brings us to our next point. When I reach for Him, I will find what I seek. And there's a reason that that's true. It's because God has established Himself as the great comforter because God is sovereign. You know, I love that word. I didn't really understand it at first, but now that I do, I, I really love that word. We don't use that word enough. We talk about God is almighty and God is loving and God is powerful, all of which are true. 
God is sovereign. And what does that mean? We don't use that word much because no human being is sovereign. Only God is. What we're talking about when we talk, what are we talking about when we talk about the sovereign God? Well, it means supreme ruler. When we think about God as the supreme ruler, I'll have to say that it makes me look very small. It makes me feel weak and small. But God is the supreme ruler. This is me. This is God. This is His mighty hand. And I live, and you live right here in the palm of His hand. He's the supreme ruler and I am nothing of the sort. And yet I can live in His comforting embrace and His power and majesty and it can rule my life and your life. And so when things seem upside down and not as they should be, we have to remember that we're not alone. Would you open your Bibles uh, to a psalm? Psalm 103. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 19. Have you ever noticed how psalms are, are often the answer? You know, there's so many beautiful words and they were written by men like David who were under great affliction when people that they loved had died or when they were fleeing for their lives or, for their li or when their life just didn't seem quite right. They wrote a psalm. Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Verse 22, Bless the Lord, all, your work, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Now where's that? It's everywhere. His dominion is everywhere. And that's why we should turn to Him for peace and for safety. Now because God is sovereign, back up to the beginning of the psalm, there's a whole bunch of things that become true and that I can believe in because of His supreme rule over all mankind. Let's read the first six verses of Psalm 103. <clears throat> Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your ears with good things so that your, you, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. You know, I like some words there. He pardons, He heals, redeems, and crowns. He satisfies, performs righteous deeds. One version says, performs great and mighty works. When we feel powerless, 
when we feel alone. Our God is so mighty, there is nothing our God cannot do. I don't know how this lesson would go if we were trying to bring comfort into the lives of people who have dealt with tragedy or the loss of loved ones or who didn't know where to turn and there was no God to watch over us. It wouldn't be a lesson, but God is watching and God is sovereign. And by the way, this applies for His Son too. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6? That word sovereignty is used sparingly throughout the Bible, but it's used in, in Psalm 103 to talk about the Father and His great might and His ability to make things better in our lives. And it's also used uh, of Jesus in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's start in verse 14 and go through verse 16. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in the unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So when you hurt, praise God. When you don't know what to do, worship God. See yourself in His almighty embrace as He guides us where He hopes and wants us to go. God is sovereign. When I start realizing His presence, even in tragedy, even in great turmoil, I start to feel something that I really was losing or I didn't have. Instead of confusion and fear, I start to feel this emotion that's called hope. You know, I like hope. Don't you? Hope says, and we can turn this thing around. Hope says, it looks like all is lost and the rest of my time on earth is just going to be a downturn toward more turmoil. But with God's presence, I start feeling something else. And maybe, just maybe, it's possible for good to rise above, to overcome, and to outlast evil in this world. Now I know, and you know, that that's already going to be true in heaven. We know from Revelation chapter 2 that if you're faithful unto death, you will receive a crown of life. We know that ultimately in the end, when we get to heaven, that good will defeat evil, and evil will be banished forever, and we will live in the comforts of heaven. But that's not the point here this morning. The point is, even here, even now, even in this life, even in this life here on earth, good can still overcome evil. We don't have to live in great fear. People are asking the question after the 9-11 attacks, they, and they have asked after every school shooting or, or a movie theater shooting, or you, know, you name it, where was God? Where was God when this terrible event was unfolding? And I'll remind you of something we said in the introduction, and let me do that now. As long as man is given free choice, and as long as at least one of those choices is sin, some men will choose it, and when they do, people will get hurt. God was there, but free choice was there also. But in the hours that unfolded after the tragedy, did you see God there in Manhattan 
Did you see God in the selfless behavior of the EMTs and the paramedics? Did you see it in the courage of the policemen and the firemen who ran into buildings, not knowing what they would find, but knowing that that was their job, it was to serve and to protect? Of the nearly 3,000 people that died that day, 412 were emergency responders there to help. You know, that's a godlike quality of courage and selflessness. Did you see it in the kindness of the scores of people that sacrificed their comfort and their safety to help those who had, who had escaped but were under terrible distress? Good can overcome evil in this world. But listen carefully. If evil is a choice and it involves action and forethought, guess what good is going to take? It's going to take some choices. Good exists when God's presence is seen on earth through the godliness of His people. So if you want to see good overcome evil, or at least outlast it and overcome it when it faces us, then we're going to need to be the advocates of good through the decisions that we make. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Open your Bibles to Romans 12. Romans 12 is about godliness on earth, but it's not about something God is going to do supernaturally. It's about godliness on, through, on earth through godly people doing godly things. I'll go ahead and skip to the punchline, and that's found in verse 21. And as we make these, uh, those choices, Romans 12, verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When good men do nothing, evil reigns. But good overcomes evil. Would you back up to verses 14 and the following? How is there hope of good here on this earth? Verse 14, Blessed those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That's verses 14, 15, and 16. God can reign over evil in life when we will be the ones who selflessly assist those who need us when we weep with those who weep, when we associate with those who seem lowly because of what life has dealt them and we help them, evil has a grip on their lives through sin and the sin around them. You're the good that brings them out of it. Look down a little further in Romans 12, verses 17 through 20. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now that's not the motivation behind it, heaping burning coals on somebody's head. Don't you think about that when you read that verse? You know, listen, when people behave in your life in the way that is evil, and we respond in a way that is evil, evil wins the battle, and evil wins the war. 
But when people treat us poorly or do us wrong or hurt us or attack us or persecute us, and we go to God and seek His character, and we respond in a way that reflects the love of Jesus and the justice of God, I'm not saying that you don't apply the law to the perpetrator. You do that. But that's the law working. But when we work in love and prayer and care for others, something happens. Good begins to win, even in the face of evil and tragedy and hurt. As these four points converge together, they produce something. And it's a practical daily truth that how we live is much more important than how we die. Life is fragile and we have no control over how many breaths you're going to, you're seeing from your Savior or seeing something else. Life is fragile for us all. God is the answer, but we don't choose Him after death. And we don't choose Him as we're dying. We choose Him while we live. God is sovereign, but He's sovereign now. He's sovereign over earth, in earth, over our fleshy lives. We choose Him today. Good won't just overcome evil in heaven. Good can overcome evil now. Listen, some pass through this life very young. And some live to be over 100. Some people pass from this life and they feel no pain. Some people suffer greatly. And I don't want to minimize that and I don't want to be insensitive about that at all. But I will tell you this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because whether we live the, leave the, this earth sooner or later, and whether there is great pain or no pain at all, it will be finished. And when it is finished, death no longer carries any significance in our life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go over to Luke chapter 13. This is a, kind of a question the student who was around Jesus was asking. There was this tower that had fallen on, on these people. Some passed peacefully in their bed at a ripe old age and a good life, and then there are others in their youth. A tower falls on them and they die. What did they do wrong? Nothing. How you die is of no spiritual significance at all. And Jesus makes this point in Luke chapter 13. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That doesn't sound like a very peaceful end. Verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. What does repentance have to do with being murdered? Verse 1, Or dying in your bed? Nothing. That's death. Jesus is talking about life. In my life, I choose repentance and my death carries no significance. Verse 4, Or do you suppose that those 18 whom on the tower in Siloam fell and killed and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will, also, you will all likewise perish. What is more important? I know what we think about more. There are apps that you can actually get for your phone or your computer that if you enter your last name, 
and your date of birth and your location, the place you live, or, or, or something like that, it will tell how many days you have left. People think about that all the time. How much time do I have left? How am I going to go? And remember, you don't have any control over that anyway. That's just a waste of good mental energy about something which we have no control over. But saddest of all is when we are so focused on things that we can't control, like our death, and we forget to take care of the important things, the things that are most important, and that is repenting of our sins and serving Jesus with our life. You've got control over that. That's a choice that you make. Think about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, it's appointed for men once to die. It doesn't say anything else about that. It doesn't tell you how it's going to happen or why it's going to happen or when it happens. It just says, it's appointed for men once to die. You know, it's like, okay, we're done talking about that. Now let's talk about something important like, and then comes the judgment. That's what matters. Death is just a doorway to something else. And so we learn an interesting and important truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our last passage, 2 Corinthians 5. This chapter is about laying off of the fleshly body and taking up the spiritual body. It's about putting aside our tent and having our house. But here's the important part, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. If you leave this life under tragedy, God is not going to give you heaven because your death was difficult. If you leave this life at ease, God is not going to punish you because you got out easy. There will be no mention of how we leave this earth, but all kinds of discussions on how we lived while we were here. <clears throat> Juliana Valentine McCourt. Juliana Valentine McCourt was four years old. She was aboard Flight 175 that was intentionally crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. She was one of four children that died too young that day. Her life was taken in a way that was no doubt terrifying, but then it was gone. The pain was wiped away and death was finished. But let me tell you something else about Juliana. She was four years old. Do you know what that means? That means she lived her entire life without sin. So she lived her life with Jesus. Would you agree with that? And so no matter when or how or why she left this earth, she lived her life with Jesus and now she lives with Jesus. Most of us have gone far past four years old. You know what that means? That means that we have come to the age of accountability and choice. You can choose to live apart from sin or you can choose to live in it. You can choose to live with God or you can choose to live without God. You can put on Christ or you can put off Christ. 
But listen carefully. What was true of Juliana is also true for you. If you want to live with Christ, then you must live with Christ now. Now that's the invitation this morning. It could be five minutes or five months or five years or 50 years before we see Jesus. But if I live with Jesus now, I will live with Jesus in eternity. And if I live with Jesus now and repent of my sins like He commanded me to do and I'm baptized in water and I have my sins washed away and I'm added to His body as He commanded, fear goes away. At least it's reduced because the when and how of my ending has just lost all significance and Satan's power over it is eliminated because when I live with Jesus, I will live with, with Jesus. And that should be the story of my life and your life. You know, there are no guarantees for tomorrow. If you were to stand before Jesus and give account of your life right now, are you ready? Your life determines your eternity. If you're subject to the invitation, you can come forward as we stand and sing.